Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is Chris Doe. He's the founder of two seven-figure businesses, the first of which is Blind, an Emmy award-winning motion design studio, which he ran for over two decades. Then in 2014, at 42, he reluctantly made his first YouTube video, which altered the trajectory of his life and career. A few years later, the future is a beloved education company with millions of fans from all over the world. Now he dedicates his life to his mission of teaching 1 billion people how to make a living doing what they love. He empowers creatives through business strategy. Chris is the chief strategist and CEO of Blind and the founder of The Future, an online education platform that teaches the business of design to creative thinkers. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. What a wonderful intro. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> Chris, it's such an honor to have you in the show. I mean, I want to give our listeners a chance to learn more about yourself and your, your childhood. What was your upbringing like? Mm. So we, we fled Vietnam in 1975, so the fall of Saigon, and landed in Kansas City, Missouri, and then soon after relocated to San Jose, California. Just typical Valley kid growing up in the shadow of like my parents and trying to figure out what the heck what, what the heck I'm going to do with my life. I uh, dealt with some early challenges. I'm an introverted person, kept to myself. I'm, and I'm nothing remarkable, or, or so I told myself for a number of years. I think I'm above average intelligence, uh, but it never really applied myself and to the disappointment of my dad and mom. And I always felt that there was something else for me, something in the creative arts, but I didn't know what that could look like. I didn't have very strong examples of what success in the creative field would look like. So I kept telling myself, just do the thing that you're supposed to do, do software, uh, be a computer scientist, do engineering, do something respectable and get like a legitimate job. But that never made me happy, but drawing and making things made me happy. And then ultimately, luckily for me, the story worked out. All right. I, I got into an art school and ultimately that's what led me down this path. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that, Chris. I was reading up on, you know, previous articles and your other podcasts, and um, you mentioned that your father, most of his family and his siblings were in the computer science field and were engineers. Um, your mother, on the other hand, and her family were mostly, you know, artists, musicians, creators. How did that kind of shift your mindset or shape your mindset growing up? And was there a certain route that appealed to you more? And how has that changed over time? Mm. Yeah, I have a lot of uncles and aunts. Uh, Both my mom and dad have a very large family, many siblings. They're the older or oldest of their siblings most of the times, or in both cases. And it just, it's kind of weird because my my dad's entire family, they're successful in in the sense of having careers and businesses, having stable families. And they were in the technical space, in engineering, in, in software, something like that. Whereas my, my mom's side of the family, artists, poets, musicians, very talented, very happy people, but not always the most uh, financially successful people. And as a young person growing up, I don't really think about like what I'm going to be in five, 10 years. I'm just thinking about right now, like 
I want to play video games and ride my skateboard and draw and just goof off and be around girls. <laughs> so I'm not exactly figuring this part out, but I know that there's a very clear roadmap for success and there's obviously a roadmap for loving your life, but maybe having financial hardship. It doesn't coalesce in my mind right away. It's only later on that when I retrace the steps back, things make sense. So for example, when we go, would go out to the fairgrounds or any, any amusement park, my mom would always see me and notice because she's like that. She pays attention that I always stopped and look at the people who did caricatures or who did airbrush art or anything that was kind of performance based. I would stop and look and I'd watch it and look at their hand skill and doing these lettering uh, on t-shirts. And so one day I think I'm 16. My mom just comes home randomly on the weekend and says, help me with this thing. I, I go out, bring, bring in like, I don't know what it's an air compressor with an airbrush. She just happened to be somewhere. I'm not sure if she went and found it or she was just at like a swap meet or whatever. And she's like, this is what my son needs. So my mom's been paying attention to me, kind of quietly encouraging me. And it was very um, subvert, not, uh, not overt. It was just like, here, here are things. You do what you need to do with them. And she just knew. And, and then she, she gave me enough space to explore my creative side without probably actively defying my father. Because to do this meant probably financial ruin, disaster, saving face with the family, that kind of stuff. And my dad, for many, many years, even after I graduated from art, art school, didn't really understand or fully accept what the heck I did. And later on, I learned that the best thing uh, that my mom did for me um, was to shield my dad's opinions about what it is I was doing. My dad could only reconcile one part, which was it costs as much to go to art center as it did to go to Stanford. He couldn't understand why his son didn't go to Stanford instead went to art school to basically to burn the money and not do anything with his life. And so oftentimes I would reference my dad as my hero, as a person who taught me all the hard life lessons. And I didn't think of my mom much, but when I understand now what my mom had to do to keep my dad at bay, she's my hero mm -hmm. because it takes a lot for a woman who grew up in a very traditional society to stand up to her husband so that her child can do what he wants. In my case, it was, it was me in pursuing art and design. And so it was just enough. I'd like to say this, that I'm strong-willed enough that I'm so self-determined that even if my dad said, I forbid you to do this, I would have still done it. But not having to face that allowed me to focus on what it is I would do without any lingering self-doubt. And so and that, that's the, the, the dichotomy between the two sides of my, my family. Oh, well, I mean, that is completely relatable. I feel like when you told your story, I feel like my mom has always been the one keep my dad at bay too. He's like, you have to be a doctor. You have to be a lawyer. My mom's always like, okay, do whatever you want. Keep yourself, keep yourself happy. As long as you stay out of trouble. That's like her very low standard of, of whatever my life should be. <laughs> you know, so said is completely, um, completely understandable. I mean, I'm kind of curious too, like at what point did you, put everything together and everything started making sense, you know, where you're like, okay, how can I pursue my passions while still making money? And how do you present that subject back to your dad and be like, Hey dad, like, I know you, I know you're kind of curious about, you know, how, how am I taking care of myself? How, are you going to make the money back? But like, at what point was a turning point where it was like, okay, everything sort of makes sense. I'm, I'm, I'd be comfortable sharing with my parents now. Yeah. So the turning point to me is very clear. I think I'm 17 or 18, somewhere right around there. I'm a senior in, in high school. I get introduced to this gentleman who's running a silk screening shop and he's a graphic designer by trade and he owns the, the company. 
but that doesn't click for me yet. Like I get to work for him and I'm inking over his drawings and I think he's an artist or an illustrator, not a professional graphic designer. And I don't even really know that term at that point. It wasn't until he sent me on an errand to go pick up typesetting. And this is like 19, early 90s here uh, or late 80s. Um, and I go and see what is one of the first Macintosh computers, the all-in-one beige monochrome thing. And, and this graphic designer was making a living working out of his home. And that then and there, I knew this was it for me, right? So this happens to be uh, with a bit of good and bad luck together that changes the course in which I take. So I applied um, to, um, to UC San Diego to UCLA and Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And I got rejected out of all three programs. So I didn't really need to explain to my dad that I'm not going to pursue the, the normal path because that path was not available to me. And so, you know, Asian people are going to know this. I got to go to community college. I got to figure out my life. And that's like purgatory for Asian parents, right? That's like your children are going to suffer there forever and, and, and do drugs and, be loose with men and women, you know, it's just, that's the path that you're going to take. So at this point I don't have to face my father cause he's already going to have to live with the disappointment that I didn't get into any school. And so once I recognize that I need to go to art school, um, then I'm, I'm just going on my path. I never had that conversation with my dad. Like I don't have to explain anything to him. And you know, my, I have an older brother. He's four years older than I am. He's just finishing up at UCSD. He's the smart one. He's the scholastic one who, who got the four point plus GPA kind of thing. He said, you know, I know you want to do art and design. Come, come and live with me. I got to work on my grad school studies, my entrance exam and all that kind of stuff. You can live with me and we'll just figure it out. And he would, uh, you know, it's kind of a funny phrase. He's like, I got to get you away from the parental units. Okay. I'm like, okay, cool. And my brother had always looked out for me. He's the one who bought me a computer. He's the one who, who flew me to San Diego to go to uh, a film festival. I didn't even know what a film festival was. And I was like, what is this? This is really cool. And so in a, in a way, my, my, my older brother is like my surrogate father who understood American culture and how the system here works. And he would always encourage me and push me. And that's really what set me on the path. Well, that is such an amazing story, you know, and I'm glad your brother was there to show you a lot of different things and what was possible. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of wish that I had an older brother to lead the way as well. Megan, do you want to ask the next question? Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to say a support system goes so such a long way, you know, and for you to have your brother there to support you and and say, you know, I have a place for you, you know, you can always depend on me and count on me that is really all it takes. And I, I love, you know, the fact that you have, you know, two different perspectives from your parents, you know, your mother being more on the creative side and then your father being more on, you know, the engineering and computer science side. It's important to see both sides because, you know, kids that grow up in just like an entrepreneurial family, they don't get more of like the corporate world and they end up, you know, just going into entrepreneurship, not really understanding what it takes to like actually build a business, right? They just follow into whatever footsteps their parents fall into. And then if you go into the corporate side, you know, you just learn the corporate strategies, but you don't know how to like venture out into entrepreneurial ways. So I think it's really, you know, just really cool to see you, you know, grow up in those two different perspectives. I wanted to so, share something with you. Yeah, of course. Uh, are you familiar with um, Blade? 
the the movie a vampire oh yeah yeah Wesley snipes yeah mm-hmm. there's a line from blade that i love and i like to repeat with you so so blade is half vampire and half human mm-hmm. so he's like i have the strengths of the vampire and none of their weaknesses and i look at it like my mom and my mom's side of the family super artistic very creative amazingly talented in a different world and a different uh, if she had different parents she would probably be a creative entrepreneur because she has ideas like this but she didn't know how and wasn't supported in that way in in the culture in which she was raised on the on the other side my dad and all their family it's like nine to five weekend warrior let's do the barbecue super stable and i knew i needed to be like my mom but also like my dad and so later on in life i wasn't going to just pursue creative things because that's what i wanted to do just because it was a passion or a whim, I needed to know this is going to work out and I'm going to bring in the entrepreneurial part and the creativity with the practicality and pragmatism that my dad had. Right. My dad's whole thing was be super conservative, work really hard, pay your dues, and then earn your way through life. And I used that in my studies. Once I became more mature, that's exactly what I did. So later on, I got a business coach. His name's Keir McLaren. And Keir said, you're, you're a very remarkable person. I know people who are more creative than you. I know people who are run, who run better business than you, but I don't know anyone that's as creative as they are at running a business. And that is your sweet spot. And so that's me being blade. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It really does take a sweet spot and you have to have both sides. Amazing. So let's talk a little bit about blind and the future. Um, You know, you're running two very successful companies right now. What was the inspiration for starting these companies? Um, blind was a, like an idea that was burning in me that I didn't know until the opportunity happened. And this is a lesson for a lot of people. When opportunity knocks, you have to be able to recognize that's opportunity. You have to open the door. You don't run away scared. So I graduated from Art Center in 1995. I had at that point already had worked one job, quit, worked a second job and quit. And I was freelancing around town in Hollywood and LA. And I was doing pretty well by the standards in which I thought I was going to do by. And it's then out of the blue. My uncle calls me. He's like, do you want to start a company? Because I, I remember you as a kid. You've always talked about doing creative big things. I said, of course. He said, well, I have a business partner. And he wants to invest in a design company. I'm like, fantastic. And it's that call, the call to adventure. And then I turned to whoever I was working for at that time. And I told him, I'm going to wrap up this booking because I was freelancing. And I'm going to start my company. And I know what they were thinking. They're looking at me like, kid, are you kidding me? You just got out of school. What do you know about anything? Weren't you just screwing up on that other job that we gave you? But that's what I did. I had a lot of moxie and, and I was young, dumb, and a little bit of arrogance. And it goes a long way. I'm like, how could I fail? That's what I thought to myself. Let's just go. And so basically I meet with a business partner. We, we do a deal over dinner. He gives me a $5,000 check as a good faith gesture. And it's like, what? I don't even understand this what's happening? It's moving really fast. And that's the genesis starting the company. Now, luck would have it that they ran into some financial troubles themselves and didn't want to fund the rest of the company. And so I was giving my company back to me and to boot, I didn't have to give the $5,000 back. So now I'm in business for myself and now we're off and running. And so that's just the genesis. And sometimes you just have to say when you're young, that's the time to make your dumb, stupid mistakes. And being an entrepreneur is full of those kinds of things. Now's the time to mess up versus later on in life when I have a lot of obligations, I'm married, have kids and mortgage payments and insurance. It's too much to risk. That was the time to take the risk. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you. You should definitely, for our listeners, definitely take a lot of risks when you're young because there's less obligations. And even for myself, when I fully left my corporate job at age 30, I felt a lot of obligation at 30 because I'm like, oh no, my parents want me to get married, want me to have kids, <laughs> want me to move on in my life. But to me, it's like, this is the golden, golden chance, almost like the last chance for me to move on and start something my own. And I would, I agree with you. I would tell myself like start earlier, start younger because you want to make these mistakes and learn and grow because nothing teaches you better through failure, you know? And I heard you talk a lot about the word failure on your other interviews and your other podcasts. And I do, I love what, how you think about the word failure, because to me growing up, the word failure means that I didn't live up to my parents' expectations. I didn't do what I wanted to do in life, you know? And I want to hear your take on the word failure because there's so much value that you can teach us. Yeah, I think failure for a lot of people is the end. To me, failure is just the beginning. And I was hanging around with Errol Garrison. He talked about fail. F-A-I-L is an acronym. And it just means first attempt in learning. So to me, failure is what you, it's a, it's the tuition you pay for success. And if you read Ryan Holiday's book, The Obstacle is the Way, failure is, the, is a set of complete instructions on how to succeed and if you if you look at your mistakes in life like that then you will grow really fast i also just recently finished reading mark manson's book the subtle art of not giving an f and he talks about like life is hard and life is full of suffering and pain and so instead of trying to avoid it we should head into it and embrace it and try to have better problems improve problems and he said that warren buffett has issues with money he has money problems the homeless person that you see down the street also has money problems. So in essence, they both have money problems, except for Warren Buffett has an improved problem. So all we're trying to do in life before we die is to improve our problems, just to have better problems. Like when you think to yourself, it would be great if my life, if I could just start a company and you start a company like, Oh, it'd be great if I could run a company and be successful financially. Okay. You do that. It's like, well, now I'm working too much. It'd be great in life. If I could have employees work, the problems never end. And you said that the avoidance of the problem is actually the problem itself, right? And the pursuit of happiness in an easy life is what leads to depression. So we should just say life is tough. Life is full of obstacles. Life is painful and there's suffering and we embrace it and just say that's part of life. And from there, I think we can do wonderful things. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. I think for a lot of people, they see failure as the, the end of the road, you know, and as soon as you give up, that's when you're you're really failing yourself. And, you know, as once you fail, you take it as a life lesson and you continue going is, you know, the only way to go. So in creating Blind and the Future, I want to know about, you know, what it was like building those two companies. You know, you talk a little, a lot about the work culture and the team behind the future. Um, I know in the beginning, I read about how the future wasn't really making a lot of money and it was a team made up of just volunteers. Um, Ryan and I can really resonate with that because we are running Asian Hustle Network right now. And we did start off with a team of volunteers. And as you know, you know, when there's no monetary compensation, um, it is very hard to, you know, retain that, that momentum and ensure that you're capturing the volunteers' attention and their interest. How were you able to just kind of build the culture of the future and, you know, make sure that the momentum was there, that you were capturing the interest of your volunteers without providing them with monetary compensation? Yeah, I think if you take it back to uh, early, early days, what we did was we didn't have money. 
we exchange values and uh, in, in services and goods, right? So if you're a farmer, you, you grow a crop and I'm a fisherman, I catch fish and look, I need vegetables and you need protein. So we see each other and I'm like, well, I caught this fish. I only have three, but you have a giant field of corn. I'll trade you some fish for a bunch of corn and it just works out. And each one of us determines what is valuable to each other. It is only in, in like in modern industrialized society that we have forms of compensation, like a coin that represents money it becomes really abstract. But if you take that away, a, a transaction happens when there's an exchange of value where both parties see a greater, uh, like you get greater value than what you gave. So someone is volunteering, they're giving you their pre- most precious, valuable resource, their time. The question is, what are you giving them? You need to give them something that they see that is more valuable than their time. You can give them experience. You can teach them things. You can make them feel part of a bigger network and a mission. And if you put all those things together, where at the end of them volunteering, they're better for it. They, they emerge a better person than when they entered. And that's a really critical thing. So in the very beginning, we're starting this company. There's no money. We're running at a deficit. The only reason why we have a company is the other company is paying for the space, the computers and the software and everything that we're using. So we're kind of using everything on loan. And so there's a couple of young people and they see my business partner at that time, Jose and myself as mentors to them. So they're looking at this as a mentorship or an internship and it's unpaid and they would be glad to be there because they want to learn from us. Mm-hmm. And so the people who came from Jose, they learned a lot from Jose. He has... Um, at that point, I guess, 20 years of experience working in the web world, uh, UX, UI at the, at a very high level for very large multi-billion dollar corporations. So they're learning how to do UX and UI and they're learning from me how to run a motion design company, how to be a better teacher. And that's how we began. But I knew this is not sustainable. So even though I had a volunteer and then most people will take advantage of volunteers, I had said to this young man, his name is Aaron. I said, Aaron, my highest priority is to make enough money where I can pay you something. Mm-hmm. It won't be a lot, but I need to pay you something because I just don't like the idea of you working for me long term for free. You got to eat. Right now, it's costing you money to be here. So in the very beginning, we would say like, okay, we're going to just buy you lunch. It's just start small. It's a very small gesture. So at least it's not costing you just to hang out with us. And we started there and eventually it's like, I can pay you uh, this rate for this many hours. And in the, they just kept increasing in hours and rate. And eventually I told them, you're going to be our first employee. So I'm going to hire you now. And I needed to make sure, and, and this is my style of leadership, is that leaders should eat last. I want to make sure that my staff, Aaron, gets paid before I pull any money out of this company. Mm-hmm. And in fact, any money we had, I just put back into the company, either in buying equipment or resources or hiring other people to help us. And so that's how it starts to begin. Very interesting. Yeah, I like that idea. I don't think a lot of people think about it that way because they think that they have to pay them a salary. Um, But obviously, as you're growing, you know, your company and you're having more projects, you're scaling, your volunteers are going to be doing more work, right? And it just feels a little bit off to have them work so many hours and not be able to pay them. But I like the idea of paying them, you know, just a lunch first and then going up from there. Yeah. It's a sliding scale. It's not that strange of a concept. If you think about it, you both went to school for many years, you paid someone to, to basically work for them, right? They taught you something and you paid them. And so if you say, I'm going to teach you something, are you going to pay me? No, we just don't, no money has to exchange hands. In fact, at some point I will pay you 
for me to teach you. And the smarter, the better you get, the more utility you provide for me. And hopefully I buy back some of my time. And that's all I'm trying to do is get back some of my time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I definitely agree with that, with that statement a lot. And I really, really maybe think about your second company in the future. You know, how you talked about, you know, you uploaded a video um, on YouTube. Can you kind of talk about like how you got started with teaching people how to live up to their greatest purpose with the passion and making money and everything because we see you a lot on clubhouse you're always there <laughs> we see you on instagram you're every single social media platform you're like killing it you know it's just so it's super awesome to see that and we'd like to hear more about you know your inspiration and your mindset and your strategy be- behind the stuff that you, te- that you teach in the future sure um, I, I want to say one thing. I, I made my first video when I was 42 years old and it was in January 2014. So if you do the math really quick, I'm 49 years old now, right? So it, it's been a couple of years and I was like many people. I'm reluctant to to get into social media. I think it's a bunch of kids doing silly things and wasting all their time. So I have all the prejudice and bias of someone who's going to get into social media relatively late in their life. And I only do it because my business partner said we have to do it because we have to make, we have to create interest in selling products, right? And so that people need to know who we are so that they can buy our products. So I think it was the, the first six, seven, eight videos that we made were very light on the education part and a lot on, hey, we have a product, you guys should buy it, here's who we are. So we did not show up to serve, we, we showed up to sell you something. And I think the number of views and the engagement that we got was reflective of this. Now, of course we did teach because we're both teachers. We tried our best, but it really wasn't until we, uh, we had decided like, you know what, let's just stop trying to sell anybody anything. Cause right now we don't really have much of an audience to speak of. Let's focus on building the audience first. And with that, let's put in the work and the time necessary. Let's build slides. Let's figure out talking points and let's try to do a really good job here. And we showed up and that was the video that started to change everything because instead of getting 30 to 50 views, this was getting hundreds of views, not thousands, but hundreds. And we were like, maybe we hit something here. And that's what told me this platform on YouTube can work for teaching. Prior to that, I'd only been teaching in real life, like with my students. And I take the, the 10, 15 years of teaching a very small group of students. I start to add in my experience of making commercials and music videos and where those two worlds meet is what we ultimately created. It took a long time. I would say like it took us two years to get to 10,000 subscribers or 20,000. It took a really long time. Let's put that in contrast. Okay. Today, um, I was just looking at the numbers. We were averaging about 5,000 subs a day. So put that in perspective. We, we get more subs in one day than it took Mm -hmm. us in an entire year of content creation. I, I share that because uh, one more one more data point I want to share with you. And I've said it on Clubhouse, but I'll say it here. We've made over 1,300 videos. I know I've made more because we've deleted a few. So 1,300 videos, I think nine have crossed 1 million views, only nine videos. Mm-hmm. So that's less than 1% of the content that we've created have actually become viral. Yeah, You know, and it's not even qualified as viral today because something that gets a million views is not even viral, but it, the 2005 definition is 1 million views. So 1%. So that means like if you show up every single day 
and you do the work and you are chasing some goal, some like viral hit, you would have quit a long time ago, a really long time ago. And that's why I talk uh, about learning uh, to love the process of, of growing and figure out who you are, uh, finding out your own identity versus the results. You got to love the process of self-improvement, self-development versus some shiny thing like a million sub plaque or something else. So when you chase those goals, first of all, when you don't get them, you lose all momentum, you lose all steam, you might even become depressed. But the other side is, what if you hit that goal? You say, I'm done. I've hit the goal. What else? I don't, I'm not that motivated to do anything else. But if your goal is constant improvement, self-development, that never ends. You just keep doing it and you try to improve your problems. Oh, that is very powerful. Um, I just wanted to start off to say that, Chris, you don't look a day over 35. <laughs> um, and that, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. You know, I think a lot of people, they fall in love with the outcome more than the process. Um, and it's it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel when you're not getting the results that you want overnight, right? But most of the time, the process and the self-development, self-improvement, um, figuring out your identity is the most important part and more important than the overall outcome. Um, and, you know, you do talk a lot about personal branding, you know, and I can see, we, we can both see, you know, you put a lot of your identity um, into your work, your videos, and you're very big on personal branding. How do you kind of separate the branding of Christo between, between Christo and the future brand as well? I think like Brian and I, we, you know, have Asian Hustle Network, but we also are trying to build our own personal branding, right? Um, I think a lot of people have told us that, you know, when you start a community, you should be in the background and put the community in front. But we saw the other way around. We thought that, you know, we do need to be a voice for the community. So that's why we kind of put ourselves in the front and personal branding is really the future now, right? Um, but how do we like make that differentiation? Like when do we put we as opposed to I, you know, and like how were you able to make that difference between Christo brand and the future brand? Yeah, I'm gonna give you some advice and and, and take the advice with a grain of salt because it because it worked for me, it may not work for you. I'm going to just tell you what it is that I do and what I believe. I have strong opinions about this. And first I'll just open it up by saying my friend, Yo Santosa says this, people do not fall in love with corporations. They fall in love with personalities. And so when you start a company and it has no personality, it's going to be very hard to fall in love with you. Cause I don't know what you stand for. I don't know who you are. What's the tone of voice, all that kind of stuff. Now in my own life, I started to do social media posts for my company blind, which had at one point, over 20 people working for us in two offices. And so it wasn't just me. I was speaking on behalf of four or five creative directors. And so we're all very different people, men, women, different ages, different ethnicities, all that kind of stuff. And so when we would write for Blind, it would sound super corporate. We'd hire PR people and they would write, you know, Blind does this, help clients do that and overcome that obstacle. It's pretty generic stuff. And it got okay traction, but everything we wrote felt self-promotional. Like we're not talking about any personal beliefs, uh, any, we're not sharing frameworks or points of view on anything. Okay. And I'm, I'm working with my friend, Jose. We're starting to make content. The company's called the school and ultimately it doesn't work out for two of us as business partners. So I want to create a new company. I don't want to lose the momentum. So I create the future. And so we're back to the start again. It's just me. And I feel super liberated because I, I don't play nice with the others and I'm, I don't like compromising and I, I move really, really fast. 
And so I'm like, wow, finally, you know, I'm uncaged. You've removed the collar from my neck. I'm going to run and I run like an animal. And so I start writing and I start building community because I was like, oh, shoot. Now Jose's got the school. I have the future. And I want to make sure people know that I'm here. I'm present. If you love Jose, stay with Jose. But if you love me, you got to come with me and I'm going to just hit the ground running. So I write. I write in the first person, I, and I write just like that. Right. And we started to get traction. So we went from zero followers on, on Facebook and our group uh, into like 5,000, 10,000. It starts to go crazy. And as the audience grows, somebody throws this out at me and they comment back. They said, shouldn't you be writing? We, isn't this a company? Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, this is a company, one person, it's me and a volunteer. Yeah. I'm going to write it like me. Cause I don't have to worry about what he's saying. He's here for me. So I'm just going to write I, and I kept doing this. And I said, you know what? This is the way I'm going to do it. I've, I've done it one way before, which is corporate speak, soulless, trying to just get work versus, you know what? I have an opinion and I'm going to build it around what it is I want to do. I don't have any um, grand ideas as to where this is going to go. All I knew is I had to build a company from scratch and I have to move fast because otherwise everyone is going to stay with Jose. So right. I'm writing, I'm creating content starting to build momentum. And, and so then this now just becomes the voice and we have young people who write on our behalf and they just write in the same voice that I've been writing and they're very good at it. They're so good at it. My wife asked me, did you write this post? I'm like, what post? I'm like, Nope. He's like, what about this post? I'm like, I didn't write that either. Uh, and, and my wife said, wow, whoever wrote this really understands you. Right. And she said, I knew the design was off cause I can tell the way you design. But what she did was she watched all of our content and she, her name's L. She still works for us. And she was writing based on the videos that she saw. And she's very good at picking up the big ideas and translating them into a very simple thing. So here's the funny story, which is the futures Instagram account has never been run by me ever. But people think it's me because they're constantly saying, hey, Chris, what do you think? And they're, they're, like, they're giggling in the back. I run my own account. Here's the problem. I'm not good on Instagram. And so this young woman, L, who studies social media marketing, you know, mm-hmm. she's a young person. Her account is killing my account. And I'm not happy with this. <laughs> I'm just not happy with this at all. We're in Canada. We're all like at a, like a big user meetup thing. And somebody pokes me. And they're, like, they're raising their hands like, yeah, Chris, I noticed that uh, your Instagram account is this and the features. I'm like, God dang it. You freaking bringing that up. It's <laughs> killing me right now. And you know why it's killing me? Because I'm a super hyper competitive person. And when someone has a 30,000 follower lead on you, it's not easy to catch up to them, especially when they're using your own ideas against you. Mm-hmm. And so that's when, like Ben, Ben Burns elbows me. It's like, dude, you, you have to be happy. She's doing it in your voice to grow our company for us. I'm like, I'm super happy. But the child in me says, no, F you, I'm going to do this. I need to beat her. And so she looks at me. And, and she's, she's young and she teases me a little bit. She's like, no, 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 no. See if you can catch up to me. And, and the way I heard it was like, F you old man, I'm gonna leave you in the dust. So eat dust. That's when I made a commitment. Oh, you see, you've unleashed the dragon. You don't know what you just did. And so I would just continue to work on my Instagram feed, developing my voice and writing, knowing that she can't write that because I haven't said it yet. Mm-hmm. It was not on a video. I'm saying it live right now in this, in this thing. 
and slowly but surely start getting closer to her. Like I'm 5,000 away. I'm still thinking this is really hard. It's like somebody's like ran the lap four times and then they say go. Mm-hmm. And like, how are you going to catch up? But eventually I'm like, you know, tortoise and hare. I'm 5,000 from you. You better hustle, girl. And she's like, oh, don't worry. I still got some plans. And eventually I catch up to her. And then I want to put so much space between her and my account that she feels like giving up. You know, I want to crush her soul and eat it. And so that's what's happened now. There's like a couple hundred thousand between us. I'm like, try and catch up with that, L. I dare you. So that's my wow. story. I love that. That is hilarious. That is so funny. Um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I'm sure you'll get there. You're you're gonna get there. You know, I can see you live there. No, I've already gotten there. Oh, no, wow. no, this is like yeah. already done. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. So, no. When I say there's a couple hundred thousand between us, I mean now in my okay. favor. Yeah. I'm like eat my dust, youngin. Wow. <laughs> that is definitely a big feat. I mean, you young people they they just know what is like the hip new thing and you know, it is very hard to catch up to them, but for you to have already caught up to them and are so far ahead, it's so amazing. That, that is a lot of social science to understand trends and know what to say and be obsessed with it. Because I think people also underestimate what it takes to grow that type of number and what, what it takes to grow that type of account. It's like hard work of researching, competition, similarities, trends, talk about current issues, figure out the damn algorithm how it works. (laughs) Can I share something with you guys? Yeah, sure. I don't know how any of that stuff. I don't know how to do any of that stuff. I'm going to just be real straight with you. And I I appreciate you reading uh, the tea leaves, so to speak. I I, I don't know how to use the social media platforms. I have to um, literally, I I called L one time like L, uh, how do I look at my stats or stories? And she's like, okay, Chris, you do this. I'm like, no, no, no. So she has to FaceTime me. It's like, okay. And then she's like, do that. Do you see this little button? Like how you would talk to you, like your parents about like how to save a file or delete oh, yeah. something. It was literally like that for her. And she's like giggling the whole time. Like, yeah, yeah, I know. I know. So I tell people this, I don't care about the algorithm. I don't care about trends. I don't care about using all these features. I know this in my heart because I have evidence of it. If you make really good content, you could be the world's dumbest uh, tech neophyte. You will win. Because that's all I do. I just try to make better content. Right. So what I've learned in in the, the months leading up to me catching up to her and then hof- and then surpassing her was I got to learn how to talk on social media because the rest is going to work itself out. And so all the young people are like, oh, so uh, did you do this thing on LinkedIn or YouTube and you're using this secret technology? Like, yeah, the secret technology is I make good content. That's that's the secret. The secret is it takes time and you can't hack experience. Experience comes, you know, bloody from your hands, callous fingers. That's where it blisters on your feet. That's where experience comes from. And I'm not bragging, but I'm almost twice her age. So it's going to be a long time before she catches up to that. Right. So when young people are like, um, do you know what you're talking about? I'm like, do you know what you're talking about? I've run a company longer than you've been alive. Put that in perspective and think about that. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's where this comes from. And a lot of the internet trolls, you know, cause you know, I try to have a youthful energy. I know I'm not young, but I try to have a youthful energy. So I dress a certain way and I look a certain way. And so people are like, bad, what does this guy know? 
<laughs> like, e -e, this would never work in the real world. I'm like, yeah, you know, what do you know? Let's, let's compare if you would like. Well, I'm happy to compare with you. But people will then dismiss you that way. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's very consistent with your message the whole, whole entire podcast. You know, it's about the journey. It's about growing into that person. It's about enjoying what you do. I'm pretty sure at some point you sort of started enjoying what you do. Otherwise, you wouldn't stay so consistent to growing your social media account. You know, and eventually we came develop a new skill. You know, yeah. you, you learn how to talk better. You learn how to create creative content. And this is something that only you can focus on yourself, you know? And it's like, I guess like a very off-tangent question I want to ask. Is like, how do you keep yourself creating good content every day? Because that is a very underrated statement they just said, you know? Not just anyone can create good content on a daily basis. Sometimes we look at our whiteboard, we look at our piece of paper, and no idea comes up and you're like, I need to stay consistent. I know consistency is a key to victory, but how do I stay consistent when I, when I can't be creative at that current moment? So my question is, how do you overcome creative block? Okay. Uh, okay. I, I thought you were going to ask a different question. So I'm going to answer the question that I thought you were asking and then you threw like a curveball right then. How do you overcome creative block? <laughs> right? So I'll try and answer both. The first one is this, is that, uh, the way that you're able to create content, it, it comes from some experience. So if you don't have experience, you get experience by just putting in hours to practice. Uh, you, you, you do the shooting and the passing, you do all the drills and, and you eat right and you exercise. You know, it's like that's the hard work that nobody talks about. And for me, it's reading books, watching videos and analyzing and breaking everything down the way that I do things. It's about hiring coaches and professionals to teach you how to be a better teacher. And I'm constantly doing that. Uh, you, you know, you think you've learned everything. And that's when you, you get old and you stagnate and, and you kind of die. And so it was even last year in the middle of the pandemic. And I reached out to uh, a professor at Art Center and said, hey, teach me your teaching methodologies. Because he's, that's what his job is. He's a, a big person into pedagogy and understanding how to teach in a very modern contemporary way using uh, question-based um, teaching styles, Socratic process. And so I'm learning and I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm like sponge. I want to learn more. I just love to learn. So if you want to be the world's biggest nerd, you're going to be all right. So when, when I set my attention to something, I don't want to have superficial knowledge of the surface, I want to have in-depth knowledge. And so it used to drive my wife really crazy. So when I'm in, when I'm into fishing, I could just order like six books from Amazon. I'll, I'll like download the video. I'm going to watch and read like, this is the habitat of the fish. And this is what the, I'm going to go and hire a guide and have them teach me. And I'm going to pay careful attention to how things are done. Cause I want to be a student of life. And if you love all that stuff, eventually it comes back, right? So if you pick a hobby, if you have an interest, go all the way, be a deep diver. Don't be a shallow diver. And so when you start to do that, then you have this wealth to speak about the things that you're talking about and you can connect disparate ideas and divergent thinking and you can put things together to make sense for people. And number two, you, you want to study how to be a better teacher. There's so many different models because you have to make something that feels like intuition seem logical in a framework or process or a step-by-step -step technique. And you have to do that in the simplest way because your, your job is to make the difficult, easy to understand, to turn the complex into the simple. That's what you're supposed to do. Now, how do you avoid burnout? 
there's two things. The first way to avoid burnout is not to chase the result. We've talked about that, to love the process and to love the person that you become in the pursuit of your goals. That's really how I measure success. How much have I changed? What was the growth that I had day to day, week to week and year to year? What is happening to me? And if you met me when I was still in school, you would see uh, probably a little bit of a cocky, self-confident person who was about design, but was very afraid to use his own voice. And throughout the years, you know, I would go back and I would bump into somebody that I went to school with. They're like, I didn't even recognize you, man. And I, I, I think they say that as a compliment, but I most definitely interpret that as a compliment. Whereas I turn around and say, you haven't changed a bit. And they see that as a compliment. I'm not trying to insult them, but I would see that as an insult. Like, are you still listening to the same bands? Oh, you still have the same fashion sense. You're still pulling the same artistic references while I've moved on. And so you want to constantly grow. You get creative block because you don't have a deep enough understanding of the problem, generally speaking. So you've run out of ideas because ideas are supposed to solve a problem. So every time I approach a project, I, I go and use that deep diving analogy. I want to learn about the client, what, what the, their competitors are doing. Uh, even if I don't know anything about marketing funnels, I'm going to learn about marketing funnels. I'm going to try to have a deeper understanding of this because I know I become richer the more I learn. And eventually, the, the, what I learn equals what's in my bank account. So I use all these things as opportunities to learn. So when I have a clear enough understanding of the problem, I let my uh, archival subconscious brain to work at it to solve the problem for me. And if you've done enough research and reading and you've prepared and you allow your, I think your much smarter brain to work for you, to connect the dots for you, I, I, I don't think you're going to run into this thing where you have creative block. I love that. That's very powerful. Um, I think for all, you know, entrepreneurs and business owners, that's, that's a very, very important um, thing to know, just learning every single day, continuing to challenge yourself, um, staying up to date on new business strategies is you know, the only way to move forward in this world. I, I really like how you pinpoint the root cause of it too, is mm -hmm. because a lot of us only understand surface knowledge. Like you need to deep dive and that's how you, that's how you extract a new level of creativity. So when you understand a subject so well that you can come up with anything that relates to it. And that um, side conversation has a lot to do with your interest, your passion, your drive to like learn more. You know, I feel like a heavy burden, uh, like a responsibility in a very positive way that people ask me for advice on far ranging topics. And I feel that if I'm going to speak on it, I don't want to be a person who spreads misinformation. At least I, I don't want to do that unintentionally. And most definitely, I don't want to do it intentionally. Mm -hmm. And so people uh, recently when I was in a clubhouse room, they're like, you guys need to follow Chris. He's a marketing genius. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa hold on. I'm no marketing genius. I just do what I do. I'm happy that you throw a label like that on me. But the reason why she might say something like that is because people used to ask me marketing questions. And so I read six books on marketing and that's how I do. I'm like, okay, um, I'm doing that. I think it's called syntopical reading where I'm reading from a bunch of different sources to compare and contrast what may or may not be true. And then I'm going to form Then That's all I can do in, in my life is to have an informed opinion. So I've read several books on marketing from different people and now I'm reading books on positioning. So I'm just adding all, all the complexities and the nuances so that, oh, okay, somewhere in here is my truth. 
And I'm going to share that with you. And I hope that helps you. Amazing. So Chris, uh, we'd love to know what's next for you and blind and the future. Um, what are your goals for the next year? We have some very specific goals for this year. So we hope that by the end of this year, and it's, it's seems so distant right now because we're only one quarter of the way to the goal and the year's half over. It's a little scary, but I'm intending to grow my private coaching community, which is called the Future Pro Group, to 2,000 members. Right now, we're a little over 500. And, and like we have to overhaul the system because the system itself was not designed to have this many people in it. So the onboarding system, having coaches and, and ambassadors and community managers, all that kind of stuff, things that we didn't have in place have to be put in place. So we're, we're trying to work through that. But my goal is to get to 2000 people that pay me $150 a month to be part of this group. And what I do is I use the money and I reinvest it right back into the group. So we have this thing and we're trying to figure out the terminology, but when you're an entrepreneur, one of the things that a lot of tech entrepreneurs have is an advisory board comprised of people who've got way more experience than them and so that they can bounce ideas off of. An advisory board happens when you have deep connections or you have money or both. Most entrepreneurs do not have the deep pockets or the deep relationships. So we're going to build an advisory board for you. They're subject matter experts and they're people who have got um, their CPAs, attorneys, copywriters from the advertising world, UX, UI people. So we're going to build this massive group of people that on any given day, you can reach out to them and they're going to respond to you. And, and this is how we create, I think, entrepreneurs of the future. So it's a mixture of private coaching, uh, having an advisory board, having a deep library of archive calls that hopefully is the blueprint or at least the foundation for many people who need to get to the next level. And sometimes I think for you uh, and, and for you to be successful, you need one piece of information. It's usually not like a whole book of information. It's like you need to reframe something that you're thinking about or a resource or something, a redirect. And it's these little adjustments that can mean a difference between success and failure. And for each person is going to be a little different. So I'm always like trying to figure out what does that person need from me right now? And if I could give it to them, their life is going to be improved. And it matters to me because if I improve your life, then I get to count it against my billion counter, which is to teach a billion people. Mm -hmm. That is extremely powerful. And I really love the mission that you have to, to teach a billion people. And to me, it's like, when I hear this is like, wow, like I, I wish that, you know, I had someone to connect me to resources and not only connect me to resources, like sit down and kind of analyze things with me because, you know, the hardest part of entrepreneurship is not really knowing what you're doing half the time, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's not knowing what to do. And then the other part is doing it. Exactly. <laughs> you learn how much you don't know. Uh, so we do have one final question for you. And that question is, what advice do you have for an aspiring entrepreneur looking to get started today? That's too broad of a question for me. <laughs> I'm sorry. Can you help me refine it? Um, okay. So what advice would you tell yourself the day you that you graduated art school? Okay. If, if I could travel back in time and know what I know uh, now, whatever I could tell myself, I would say something like, this is going to sound, this is me speaking to myself now, right? This is going to sound really weird, but you need to start making content. You're not going to like the way you look. 
You're not going to like the way you sound and you're going to feel like you're being really foolish at doing this. And a lot of people are going to second guess you. In fact, they're going to ridicule you and try to tear you down. But I'm telling you right now, get on the content game because you're going to learn a lot about yourself. And in turn, you're going to help a whole bunch of people that you'll never meet in this lifetime. And do this and do it consistently and do not give up no matter what. That's what I would say. That is great, great advice, you know, and I think, I think the podcast is so perfect because I was looking at my TikTok today. I'm like, man, I haven't grown any followers in the last month. <laughs> Maybe I should quit. <laughs> but I appreciate that, Chris. Great advice. Can happen at more perfect timing. Yeah, exactly. Very, very powerful advice. And how can our listeners find out more about you and Blind in the future online? Yes, I would just like them to direct their attention to the future because Blind is a is a shell company at this point because we don't do any more client work. We stopped taking on clients since December 2018. I'm just knocking wood. We'll never do another project with a client. Um, they can find me pretty much on every single social platform. I'm at the Chris Doe. Doe is spelled D-O. It's a Vietnamese name, the Chris Doe. And you can find our future content on YouTube where we're at the future is here. The future is spelt without an E. Uh, someone on social media said, hey, where did the E go? Why, why did you spell it without the E? I said, we dropped the E go. So there's no E in the future. That's what <laughs> oh, that's it. so clever. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Chris. We will leave all of those links in our show notes. It was awesome hearing your story today. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. Thanks, thank Maggie. You, Thanks, Brian. Hey, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much. This podcast was made with Descript. Descript is a groundbreaking new media tool that allows creators to edit audio and video like a text document and create a realistic clone of their own voice for seamless edits. Please check out our Patreon at Asian Hustle Network. We want Asian to continue being meaningful and give back to the Asian community. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to our feature, we hope you become a patron.